Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust, a podcast for digital transformation leaders where we discuss the latest cyber attack issues, enterprise security strategies, and current security events so that you can successfully accelerate network and security transformation. And now here's what's on our mind this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. I'm Lisa Lorenzen with Zscaler here with my colleague, Pam. Hey, everyone. And today we have another teammate joining us, Brian Green, who is CISO for the Americas with Zscaler. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Lisa and Pam. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about your role here at Zscaler. What do you do day to day? Sure. So my official title at Zscaler is CISO for the Americas. And my role and what I do on a daily basis is really to advise our customers and our partners, helping them enable and, and accelerate their transformation journeys to both public cloud, private cloud, but also in terms of zero trust. I come from a practitioner background. I previously was at Salesforce and have worked in other high-tech companies and healthcare and a bunch of different industries. Great. And it's been fabulous having you on our team. I know you went to RSA in person this year. I wasn't quite brave enough. I have a little bit of FOMO, but I'd love to live vicariously through your experiences. So how did you find RSA? Yeah. So the FOMO is real, I would say. The experience was good. Very transparently, I was actually a little bit nervous about going, however long we're into this pandemic now. And it was great to see everybody in person. There was a lot of really positive, good energy at the conference. And I think it was a good reminder of the value of in-person events. I think that we spend so much time on Zoom today that we forget that interpersonal connection and just how valuable that time is. So Brian, I'm curious, you just mentioned you were always a practitioner before you came to Zscaler. So you attended RSA for the first time this year as an actual vendor. So how different is that? Or what was your experience like being a vendor versus the practitioner like in the past? Sure. What I would tell you in a nutshell is very different. As a vendor, I spent a fair bit of the time at the conference actually working. Whereas in the past, I think as an attendee or as a practitioner, I really had the freedom and this kind of the luxury of time to attend very specific talks or dabble and kind of walk the conference floor and do those things. So I really didn't get an opportunity. Honestly, I didn't even go to the conference floor this year because we were just always spending time with customers and partners and doing things like whiteboarding sessions. It was great. Honestly, uh, I really liked this, this angle of it. You know, getting that kind of in-person face-to-face time was very valuable. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get the opportunity to pick up any cool swag. That's always one of the things I love about the show floor is seeing what creative things the vendors have come up with to give away to get their logo out there. I literally got zero swag and I'm not sure how many industry t-shirts I have in my closet, but I'm sure that I don't probably need another 10. I'm seriously considering taking some that I have and making one of those t-shirt quilts, calling it my security blanket. (laughs) You should definitely do that. I, on the other hand, when I moved, I took a bunch of those industry t-shirts and donated them. So hopefully they went to a good cause. Also a great idea. As you were talking with customers and prospects, were there any particular themes that bubbled up? What was top of mind for them? Top of mind from my perspective was what I heard a lot from customers and just from individuals I spoke with is very much a focus on identity and access management. So kind of all things, identity governance, really moving to a model where security is identity centric. So seeing a lot of discussion, a lot of talks about that, and just also being just really top of mind for folks. So Brian, I'm curious, on a daily basis, I have peers talk about, well, my identity isn't clean. I got to wait. We're focused on identity. Can you talk a little bit just briefly in your conversations and hearing that common theme of identity, 
did you go ahead and did you kind of coach them in a certain way relative to identity? It's a great question. And I think having a bias towards moving to zero trust, having that strong underlying identity architecture and infrastructure and capabilities is critically important. However, what I would say to directly answer your question is it's not a requirement that you perfect your identity and access and your identity governance solution prior to moving towards an identity-centric security model or moving even towards zero trust. I think leveraging what you have, having good discipline with respect to what are the particular use cases that you're looking to solve. I guess what I'm saying in kind of a very high level is that you can simultaneously be on both a zero trust journey and on an identity and access management. They don't need to be separate or discrete functions. If you do it right, you can actually use one tool to inform another tool. We see customers that are using application discovery in ZPA, not only to discover their asset inventory, but to gather better information to help mature their identity and access management groupings. One of the big mistakes I see people make is thinking that you have to have a fully mature identity and access management environment to tackle zero trust. And I would hope that we're starting to recognize that that isn't true. It isn't as much of a roadblock as I think people have been worried that it would be. Yeah, I would even double down further on that and say that the visibility that moving to something like SASE or SSE gives you that enhanced level of visibility and insight and the telemetry in which you can make better access decisions to say, okay, these particular group or subset of users need access to these particular applications and so on. So I think it actually, it may accelerate in some ways your identity and access journey. Brian, I think to not only accelerate it, but it helps maintain from an operational perspective, because let's face it, as most spent the time cleaning up their identity, but then all of a sudden a couple months go by and they're realizing, oh gosh, it's not so clean anymore. It doesn't seem like a lot of organizations can maintain keeping it the way they want it to be. Whereas if you move to zero trust, you have the visibility, you have the understanding, right? I think it's easier to operationalize the cleanliness or the validity of your identity. Right. From a practitioner perspective, the hygiene and the, as you said, sort of the care and feeding of your identity and access management and, and overall, all of the various attributes and roles and, and those sorts of things, it becomes very sort of unwieldy, particularly as you get into these large enterprise customers, these global multinational corporations, it becomes extremely difficult when you have hundreds of thousands of people, and I'm talking employees and contractors and third parties and so on in your directory. Being able to manage that at scale becomes exceedingly difficult, obviously layers upon layers of complexity. It's amazing how complex, and especially if they're big in acquisitions too, right? Let's just make it much more difficult to maintain. So coming back again to RSA, outside of identity, was there anything else that you heard that you would actually work into future engagements or will it really be that identity piece worked into your future conversations? I think identity was obviously a, a big part of what was top of mind for a lot of the folks and conversations that I personally had. What I would also say is there was a lot of discussion, obviously, with organizations are in various stages of their transformation strategy with respect to first-party data centers or co-location data centers and what their cloud transformation strategy looks like. So hearing a lot of discussion as far as how do we move to multi-cloud? Should we move to multi-cloud or should we, in fact, single home with AWS or GCP or Azure or something like that? hearing a lot of concerns and dialogue and, and frankly, just strategic decisions on multi-cloud provides a lot of advantages versus single cloud, but then how do you get those common security controls across multi-cloud? Whereas using a lot of the native capabilities within a particular cloud. And obviously this dovetails and has its tentacles into things like third-party and vendor and supplier risk management and all those sorts of things. 
from a practitioner perspective, there's no shortage of concerns or topics that are really top of mind, but those were probably the big ones. You know, if I had to wrap a bow around them, I would say identity, securing cloud workloads, multi-cloud workloads, and TPRM, third-party risk management, those sorts of things. Okay, Brian, by any chance, did anyone confront you or ask you, or did you hear a conversation taking place about what does zero trust mean? It seems like on a daily basis, I get the question, what does it mean? Or you vendors, you've all changed what the term is to manipulate it to be your technology. I'd love to hear if if people were talking about that too. Yes. Short answer, yes, absolutely. There is, I feel, a fair bit of industry FUD, for lack of a better word. There's a lot of confusion, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about what zero trust is. Where I try to ground this conversation and where I try to steer this conversation is back to to NIST 800-207. That is effectively our single point of authority for all things kind of zero trust related. I think there's also a challenge within the industry that a lot of vendors who want to come in and act as though we can solve sort of all things zero trust, but that's, I think, explicitly not the position that we take, especially here at Zscaler. We recognize that we play an integral part of what zero trust looks like, but we aren't the end-all, be-all, all things of zero trust. We view zero trust as a holistic ecosystem. We want telemetry and from all of the different parts of the security ecosystem so we can ingest and consume things like, what is the security posture of the endpoint? How are you doing with patching? back to identity and access management to our previous conversation, how do we consume and ingest all of those things in which we can meaningfully make security decision and also business logic decision? Things like the types of access people get, the parameters in which someone gets access to systems or resources. Are they coming from a high-risk country? Are they coming from an embargoed country? Do they meet the security requirements for your particular organization? Or maybe from a privilege access perspective or from an infrastructure access perspective, maybe you don't allow or you have different set of criteria for network access to critical infrastructure or to production infrastructure, those sorts of things. So to me, it's all of those things because it's not just a simple answer. This is why you get drift in the definition of zero trust and how people perceive zero trust. So I'm going to introduce a new definition of zero trust. I heard from a lot of my friends that they caught COVID at RSA. It was the elephant in the room. And I really feel like there's a little bit of an analogy with enterprise security there. You have to trust no one. You have to assume breach. You have to do risk mitigation. How does that inform our enterprise security? Touche. I'll play along with your COVID enterprise security parallel. I do think there's a lot. When we think about things like enterprise security, risk management is at the heart of that, both in our personal and professional lives. So for example, From the RSA conference, I knew that there was a very high likelihood that I would come in contact with people who were exposed. And I think when we look at how we do security internally or in terms of enterprise security, it's very similar. We're looking at risk domains, things like how do you do patch management and vulnerability remediation and those sorts of things. So I do think there are a lot of parallels. And I think that's one thing that being a security practitioner has taught me is viewing the world through the lens of risk management really helps you inform a lot of the decisions you make, both in a professional context and in a personal context. Makes a lot of sense. We saw so many pictures of large crowds of unmasked people in tight quarters. And I think if you applied that same level of threat modeling to your desktops, the people who say, well, if you want to protect yourself, you can wear a mask, but I don't need to. If I walked in and said, well, if you want to protect yourself, you can run antivirus in your endpoint, but I don't need to, I'd get laughed out of the IT shop. So I think there are a lot of areas where it highlights some of the challenges of threat modeling and how we evaluate risk, frankly. You should speak at RSA next year about RSA and COVID and threat modeling, the human populations. That would be a fantastic tech-related talk. I'm sure they would love to be used as the poster child for how not to do threat modeling. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's jump ahead to next year. So what do you think, if anything, should be done differently? You've attended for many years, RSA. Any ideas? It's a great question. I think we as a culture really are struggling with how to go back to some sense of normalcy in terms of security conferences. I think none of us have the right answer. And I think that, you know, all 21,000 of us that attended RSA were a little bit of guinea pigs. We all had some desire to go and to be in person and generally accepted the risks that were associated with that. So I think for me, it's about, again, risk management and making the best decision that you can in terms of your own personal circumstances. If you have immunocompromised or elderly folks in your family, maybe you make a decision rightfully so that you don't attend these things. But if you're not in some of those higher risk categories and you're fully vaccinated and you take the appropriate safeguards and limit your interactions, I think that the security conferences and conferences in general provide tremendous value. So going back to your question, what would we do differently? I think the jury is still out. I think that we don't have clear line of sight into what that really looks like. I think it's a great view on that, Brian. It still blows my mind though, 21,000 people attended. That's to me just amazing. As I understand it, I've only attended once RSA. And at that point, if I understand correctly, it's usually about 40 some thousand that attend this event. And so I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, 21,000 of 40,000, that's still massive. Yeah. As someone who attended in the 40,000 years, it was amazing. The energy and the volume of knowledge in one place, the hallway conversations at the same time, but might've been overgrowing San Francisco a little bit. There were times where there were so many different parts of the venue that it was hard to get from one talk to another. I think we need to figure out how we come back. I think we need to figure out how to scale these things. And I definitely think we need to figure out how to do them safely. But there's a reason they happen. They're one of the best places to exchange information. And honestly, to me, the hallway track is as valuable as the official presentations. Yeah, I'll admit I was a little nostalgic. There was a part of me when I was at the conference, just going back to having that sense of normalcy. I will say that I am also a little biased. I came to Zscaler from Salesforce and Salesforce obviously hosts Dreamforce in San Francisco downtown, which provides so many attendees that there are literally not enough hotel rooms and they bring in cruise ships, which is absolutely ridiculous and hilarious. So it felt a lot like San Francisco during Dreamforce. The weather was amazing and people were very happy, obviously, to be out and about and socializing and those sorts of things. Lisa, to your point, we need to find a way in which we can do it safely and so that we can get broad participation from all the different parts of our industry. One thing that I heard that was very interesting, and I don't know that this to be fact, but I did hear a rumor that RSA was potentially moving to Las Vegas from San Francisco because of a lot of the logistical concerns and those sorts of things with hoteling and traffic and those sorts of things. Has anyone else been able to confirm that or hear otherwise? I haven't heard it, but I can see it making a lot of sense. Of course, the one thing we need is another conference in Vegas on top of all the others. There's got to be a reason they all congregate there. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us today, Brian. It's really been great to hear your perspective on it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lisa and Pam. It's been fantastic. And thanks to everybody who's tuned in with us today. We've bounced around a bunch of different topics, but hopefully it's given you a lot to think about in terms of your own threat modeling, your own position relative to in-person conference and what's important. Look forward to talking with you again on a future episode. Cheers, y'all. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find Lisa Lorenzen and Pam Kubiatowski on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com or on LinkedIn. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. 
You should consult with your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.